Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Mankind lives in the seeking of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. And if you're living by pain pleasure principle, you're living in survival. You're just all you're doing every day is trying to find some pleasure by chance and trying to avoid some pain if you can. And that is not a purpose. With purpose, every day you recognize that there is going to be some pain, there's going to be some pleasure, but your constant companion is always purpose. It's the true north, it's the compass setting, it moves you in a direction. So once you have your philosophy, from that philosophy derives your purpose, that purpose now starts to give you direction in the most important areas of your life, as we already cited, not just your career, but it can be your relationships, your you personally, spirituality is a very big one, you know, having a purpose in that. All these things uh, matter, and your purpose is going to really, in large part, dictate are you going to have an existence of survival or are you going to live in some kind of a passionate and a, and a passionate way that creates achievement that fulfills you? Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Hey, Bettys, welcome back to another episode. You are listening to Better with Dr. Stephanie, and I am your host, Stephanie Estima. I have such an exciting conversation to bring to you today, and this is a masterclass, if you will, in philosophy and critical thinking. And this has been, I think, a topic that has come to the forefront, especially in light of this pandemic and the attack on science and the media who basically shoot us every single day, fear-mongering messages, attacking our limbic brains and not allowing us to critically think and parse through what is aligned with us and what is not. And yes, that is a direct shot at big media because I think that they all want us to hate each other because they profit off of that. So I am bringing you a conversation with my longtime mentor, Dr. Patrick Gentempo. And I have mentioned him on the podcast before. He has been someone who is very easily one of the biggest influences in terms of my thinking and my personal and professional development as a doctor, as a healer, as a role model, as a mother, as a wife. And he's done that so eloquently, not just with me, but for many of the doctors that he has touched through this idea of understanding your philosophy. And we are going deep on philosophy 
philosophy and critical thinking today. So you're going to really want to stay tuned for this. This is so exciting for me because I think that this is really a skill that is very much lacking um, in this sort of post-pandemic world. So before we get into that, I do want to just shout out Red Jenny 10 from Canada, from the motherland. And she writes, she left this beautiful review of the pod and I wanted to share it with all of you. She writes, the title of it is unbelievable, which already is like so great. Thank you. Um, So she says, this is the secret sauce for all women. Love everything you do and thank you. And well, let me just say thank you uh, for taking the time to write that. I know how busy things can be. And the more reviews we receive, the more, you know, Apple, iTunes and all the other podcast uh, platforms will deem this podcast more important and it will share it with more people. So I would love to request Betty's your five star rating or even a review. Um, And if I see it, I shall read it out on the pod. All right. So let's talk a little bit about our masterclass in philosophy and critical thinking. So we start off this conversation talking to Patrick about his origin story, how he came into the work that he is currently doing. And he has sort of three, he talks about this idea of like three different acts in his life. And he started off as a chiropractor, practiced for many years, very successful practice, then moved into being a thought leader in the chiropractic space and developing technology for chiropractors to be able to delineate uh, areas of the spine that needed, um, you know, tending to. And he has, and we talked about his book, uh, Your Stand is Your Brand. So we talk about the idea of understanding your philosophy so that you can draw a line in the sand and take a stand on something. And in our conversation, we talk about something called maximum tension. And this is something I think all women can relate to where, you know, they want to heal their metabolism. Maybe they want to, you know, to do the research to be able to figure it out. And they have the kids that they're trying to homeschool or raise. They have the career that they're trying to juggle. And it's just like this, you know, you're being pulled from all of these different um, angles and you reach the state of maximum tension and why and how it prevents someone from actualizing on their goals and some strategies for how to relieve that tension. And then we move into what he calls the five P expansion. So we talk about, so it's five P's here, philosophy, purpose, psychology, procedure, and prosperity. So it's, and I love what he talks about here specifically. It's like, it's not the what to do that's going to differentiate you from achieving success, but it's who to be. So it's not what it's who. And so we talk about how these procedures, um, you know, when you are following, you know, a certain template that someone might gives you, of course, results are going to vary because it is not what you do, but who you are when you are doing those things that really matters. And then we go super nerdy and we get into some of the philosoph- like the philosophical branches um, of philosophy. So we talk about metaphysics, uh, epistemology, we talk about ethics, we talk about aesthetics, we talk about politics. So all of those things under one branch. I told you this was a masterclass. It's going to be so good for all of you, all of my Bettys that love to learn. And then we talk about 
uh, finding your Miles Davis. So this is an idea um, where you are basically taking two things that you are super passionate about and combining them together in a unique way. And so we talk about a couple of examples of that. And then we talk about this idea of creative destruction. So this idea of like the Phoenix rising, rising from the ashes that you sometimes you need to, you know, in order to get to the next level in your life, it's more about what you need to let go of, what you need to destroy rather than what you need to add. So it's like addition through subtraction. So he calls this creative destruction. And then we talk about some of the other examples in our modern world that can, that are causing some of the cognitive dissonance. Uh, So we talk a little bit about, you know, maybe a, a similar stimulus like, you know, mask wearing, same stimulus and two people can have completely different responses to it. You know, one person might say, this is good. This is keeping us safe. It's preventing the spread of the virus. And then someone else looking at the same stimulus might say, there's no evidence to support mask wearing. Um, there's, um, you know, no evidence that this is going to reduce transmission and this is a, you know, uh, in, coming into my personal rights, etc. So, we talk about how you can have the same stimulus and have a completely different reaction based on your philosophy and then how you can begin to unpeel and understand who you are, what your belief systems are. And in doing so, you can better understand some of your behaviors. So this is a great episode full of rich content. I know you're going to really enjoy it. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with my mentor, Dr. Patrick Gentempo. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. 
We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family. And over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apreski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. Okay, Dr. Patrick Gentempo, welcome to the podcast. I'm so thrilled to be hosting you today. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. When I when I first started this podcast, so we just actually turned a year uh, old this week. I knew that I wanted to have you on it because I have been, you know, a student of your work uh, for gosh, I don't know, ten at least at least a decade, and you have really you know, in terms of your impact on me, and I've said this on other shows uh, as well, you've had this massive impact on my ability to think as a doctor, as a mother, you know, and, and the ability to just critically think, to evaluate my own thinking as a means for growth. And I think this year, of, you know, there's been many things that have happened this year. I think that there's no better time to be talking about critical thinking and, and, the, and to have the skills and the ability to evaluate the way that we interact with our world. So I'm so happy to have you on here today. Well, thank you. And, and uh, I appreciate the kind comments, uh, uh, not just because they're kind, but if there's ever anything I want to get across uh, when I'm giving presentations, et cetera, it, and the impact I want it to have is exactly what you said, being able to, uh, to clarify your thinking, uh, to uh, learn how to critically think, have a system for it in essence, and uh, it always, not sometimes, but always leads to better outcomes. So I'm, I'm really glad that was your experience. Amazing. All right. So I want to, so I want to dive in and unpack your philosophy and your book, your stand is your brand. And that will be a link that we'll put in the show notes for people to, to find it. Um, and I want, before we dive into that, I wanted to just give our listeners a little bit of context. So, you know, you've been someone who's had a massive influence on me, but, you know, let, and you've lived many, many lives, right? You've been a doctor, you've been, a, you know, very much still a, a thought leader in, in healthcare and a filmmaker. So let's, let's tell the listeners, you know, how you came into the work that you are currently doing and how philosophy has actually helped mold where you are right now. So as a quick bio sketch and, and you're right, I've, I've had multiple, uh, you call chapters in my life or uh, I call them act, act one, act two, act three, act four, I think I'm in now. Um, so I, I started life as a chiropractor. Um, when I got out of chiropractic school, uh, I had a, a series of things happen that put me into New York City. Um, and I was living in the city and I was one day riding my bicycle down uh, 8th Avenue near 42nd Street. A truck pulled out, cut me off. Basically, I, I 
went down on the ground on my bike, slid down and then went under the truck's tires and he started to pull out and ran over front tires ran over me. Uh, yeah, I had a head injury, broke my leg there. Yeah. We weren't wearing helmets way back when this was some years ago. And, uh, and then fortunately people stopped the truck from continuing. Otherwise it would have crushed me. It would have killed me. Uh, so I was laid up. I was on this whole track. I'd been on this TV show, all this stuff was happening. And, uh, this, this, uh, I was on this whole track and then it all just got interrupted, uh, very suddenly. And, um, I am a slow reader. I'm, I'm somewhat dyslexic. Uh, you know, I can't really track real fast and read real fast, but I can read and comprehend very well. And I never read thick books <laughs> as a consequence. So uh, I was laid up for a while on my back, depressed, and a friend brought me a, a book, a big novel by Ayn Rand called The Fountainhead and said, uh, you're not going anywhere, so I might as well read this. And I read it and it really spoke to me in a way like nothing did before uh, because it, it, it portrayed an entire philosophical view of, of existence that um, I found fascinating. So I uh, then went on to read uh, Atlas Shrugged, which I've now read many times uh, over time. Uh, my mentor that uh, I ended up um, being under for many years of my life, Nathaniel Brandon, uh, he, uh, he was a student of Ayn Rand, spent 18 years with her and, and the first and Atlas Shrugged in its first edition was dedicated uh, to him and her husband. Uh, so I really got into understanding philosophy, the applications of philosophy. Uh, I'm not an academic philosopher, but I am someone that has spent decades looking at the practical application of philosophy in human life. And I, I, the conclusion I've drawn amongst many is that philosophy is the most practical thing a human being can hope to embrace. And I'm talking about putting dollars in your pocket, practical. I'm talking about uh, spiritual actualization. I'm talking about your relationships, philosophies at play in all things. Anybody listening to this or watching this right now, they have a philosophy. The only question is, have they defined their philosophy in a conscious and rational way, or have they let it accumulate, as Ayn Rand used to say, like a junk heap in their subconscious, mm -hmm. which as much as philosophy can be a, a, a tool for achievement, the uh, other side of that is true too, is that when you have contradictions in your basic philosophical premises, the only possible result is destruction and the amount of destruction is relative to the level of contradiction. So uh, I, from there, um, had started a, a chiropractic practice. I, I practiced for some years while I was in practice. I developed um, uh, diagnostic technologies uh, and co-developed them. Uh, I had patents on those technologies. Next thing you know, I found myself in business. Um, for 23 years, I ran that business as its CEO. It, it scaled to a fairly uh, large business that had a lot of impact. We, uh, when I exited the business in 2011, I think we had about 8,000 chiropractic clients on, uh, on six continents using the technology. Um, my wife and I then formed a, a holding company called Action Potential Holdings and started to invest in varying projects and develop things like our philosophy formula training and some other things that we did that we had some passion around. And um, I sort of stumbled into uh, a passion project with a filmmaker named Jeff Hayes. So my wife and I partnered with him in a thing called Revealed Films. Uh, and next thing you know, we started making these docu-series films on a lot of subjects that uh, were controversial uh, and that I had a lot of passion around. And next thing you know, uh, for the last four years, my main business activities have been in, in filmmaking. I uh, couldn't have guessed that one, didn't see it coming, but it sure has been a lot of fun. So uh, that's, that's kind of how I got here. Yeah. And your, your films are really great. We'll put, we'll put um, the revealed series and how people can sign up for them as well in the show notes as well. And in, in the book, so I wanted to, I wanted to talk in you, you talk about this experience of being hit uh, by the, by the truck that was reversing, you know, if it, 
kept going, it would have, you know, killed you. So you had people that stopped it. You, you talked about, you know, the reflection that you did afterwards, and there's an important sentence that you wrote, and I think it's worth highlighting. You said your true calling lies somewhere within your strengths, not in your weaknesses. And you just touched on it now when you said, you know, your contradictions are really uh, lead to your destruction. I just wanted you to expand on that because I think that it's such an important, you know, and it doesn't matter what the goal is, right? Like the goal could be, you know, your health and fitness. It could be your relationship with your husband or your wife. It could be your parenting. Talk a little bit about how your true calling lies in your strengths and not your weaknesses. Yeah, that's a great highlight from the book. Um, so I'm really glad you picked that one out. Um, basically, most people that I encounter are searching. Um, they don't have a strong sense of what they feel like their purpose is, what their true purpose is. Um, and they're sort of um, stumbling around life, sometimes even from a financial perspective, somewhat successfully, but they're certainly not fulfilled uh, spiritually. Um, you know, they're, they're still searching, they're still asking the big questions, they still have a hole that they're trying to fill. Um, and uh, when people come and talk to me and say, well, how do I get this fair? How do I find this? Even when I talk to my own kids about this, uh, that's one of the things I think is a clue. You know, it's like, I can't tell you what your purpose is, but I can give you some things to think about and, and maybe some clues. And then, you know, hopefully you'll, you'll uh, have the great, um, uh, benefit and achievement of, of figuring out what that is for you. Uh, so, and God knows looking at <laughs> the very careers I've had over my years, uh, you can see that I've, I've, I've been searching quite a bit myself. Uh, but uh, a lot of times, like, for example, people say, you know, my, my passion, I want to call them my passion. And, uh, and they, they feel like that is their purpose. And it could be, but not necessarily. So like, for example, I have a passion around playing guitar and, you know, I have, if you look downstairs in my house, I have a whole band room set up. I've got, you know, amps and guitars and mics and bass and drums and, you know, piano, which I also play. And, you know, all that stuff set up down there. So people who come over, we can jam, et cetera. And um, I have a real passion for it, but it's not my purpose in life to be a professional guitar player, a professional musician. I, it's not a strength. I mean, I, I can get through some songs, I can play some rock and roll, but it's definitely not a strength. And I could spend my whole time, my whole life saying, this is what I'm on this earth to do. But if I had to really be objective a little bit and take a step out and observe, I'd say, I don't have like this natural, great talent for playing, for singing, for songwriting. I can do all those things. I just don't do it on a world-class level. And uh, there's, there's, it's just not my purpose. So instead of a purpose, it's a hobby, you see. Um, but there's other things I have that are great and unique strengths that um, that now, for example, um, and I don't say any of this to self-aggrandize. I have weaknesses, many, many weaknesses. I believe every human being is born with real strengths. I don't think there's any such thing as a person that comes into life that doesn't have significant strengths somewhere. Now, whether they discover them, that's a different story, but they have strengths. And all of us, of course, also have our weaknesses. So um, in the last, you know, what, what did I figure out? I, I've always had a strength to, um, to organize thinking and to get up in front of large audiences and to deliver presentations that can really move and change an audience. I've, I've just always, that's a real strength for me. Um, I didn't realize uh, until I started doing this first passion project in film 
that similar to that strength, I have a really um, uncanny ability to interview, to sit and interview people, which is what I do in our filmmaking. Uh, We make our documentaries, we sit, it's kind of 60 minute style, and I do these interviews something I'm really, really strong in. Now I can give you a list of 20 things that I'm weak in, you know, in the business, but I stick where I belong, do my strengths and delegate to those weaknesses. So I think when people look, they say, um, you know, one of the purpose tests is what are you really good at? Meaning what's a strength? What are you passionate about? And that's another circle. And then what does the world need right now? And where those three circles com- converge, that's a pretty good clue as to what your purpose might be in this life. Right. So if you think about like three, like a Venn diagram where you have three overlapping circles and then it's right in the middle where all three of them are overlapping with each other. And it's interesting that you say that around, you know, staying in your zone of genius is essentially what you're talking about, where you have definitive strengths. Like I'm really good at interviewing. I'm really good at uh, delivering an emotionally moving or a life-changing speech. And when we think about this in the context of every day, like everybody, myself included, we all seem to accumulate these to-do lists, right? We have these things where we have to check, 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 like do the thing that we're supposed to, even though we might not necessarily be great at them. And I remember, I think it was, I was in your... um, I think I was in your first philosophy. I think I was in the first class of your philosophy formula. And you were talking about, you know, if you're a chiropractor who's making, you know, whatever it is, like $500 an hour, and then you come home and then you're, you know, doing the laundry and, you know, doing the dishes. It's like, you're essentially paying someone 500 bucks an hour to do that. And I remember going, oh my God. And that was the first time that I had hired help because that allowed me, because I'm not particularly good. I mean, I can figure out the dishwasher, whatever, but not particularly good at laundry, always ruin things. But that keeps me in my zone of genius, which is, you know, learning the art and the science of, of my practice and my craft and having someone else who can do that job much more, you know, efficiently than I can. And I'm also not paying them 500 bucks an hour to do so. So you talk about, and I bring this example up because you talk about this in terms of getting in our own way, you know, like someone might have the means to, you know, if someone, I have a lot of women that come to me for, you know, they want to heal their metabolism. They want to, you know, uh, help get balance their hormones, you know, whatever it is. And they might have the information, you know, they might understand, okay, well, I need to eat like this. I need to move like that. I need to manage my stress, but they don't execute on it. There's this like inertia that they can't seem to overcome. And I wanted to, I wanted your thoughts on this idea that you talk about in the book called maximum tension, which is where we may have these, we may have the right intention. We may have the right idea around how we want to move, but we can't actually seem to do that. So can you talk a little bit about what maximum tension is and why that is a preventative um, for so many of us on actualizing and, and, and executing on our goals? Yeah, sure. And you did a great job assembling like, you know, the the pieces, you know, for how this kind of comes together. Um, So exactly. You said, you know, the the principle of leverage is an important principle uh, and leverage is getting things done through other people or through technology, which means that, for example, if you're cleaning your house, um, you know, you 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 can do it if you know, you might not like to do it. You I'm sure you have the ability to do it. But you're under leverage, you know, if you're doing that, which is maybe, I don't know, call it $15, $20 an hour task as compared to hiring somebody else to do it. 
you know, given what your scale of, of uh, income is. So um, what happens very often, and, and this is where contradictions come into play with this, uh, I refer to maximum tension as the, the biggest barrier to entrepreneurial growth. And <clears throat> so what does that mean? Let's say we all have these important categories of our lives and let's say what's driving you in your career is pulling you in this direction. Um, and what's driving you in your uh, love relationships pulling you in this direction, what's driving you in your health and fitness is pulling you in this direction, what's driving you in your personal finances is pulling you in this direction. We have all these things, but if you can imagine to give a visual maximum tension and you know, my arms will go off screen here a little bit. Um, if, if what's pulling me, let's say in my personal life is pulling me this way. And then what's driving me in my career is, is driving me in this direction. Over time, I can go in these two directions until finally I get to this point, what I call maximum tension, where this is trying to pull me this way, my career, but my personal life is pulling me simultaneously in the opposite direction. I get at maximum tension. When I'm at maximum tension, I'm stuck. Now, this explains a lot. It explains why it was, and I, I came upon this, this theme just from being a presenter. I was traveling around the world, you know, very often, like maybe 150,000 plus miles a year giving presentations. And um, I went there with an intention or a purpose to help people shift or change their lives through the presentations I would give. What did I find? I found that people would come to the presentations, they would all, you know, all but, you know, many most would come and say, oh, my God, this was great. I got so much information, pages and pages of notes and action items. I would leave. They would leave. I'd run into that same person, let's say, a year later or six months later. And they'd say, oh, you know, I saw you when you were, you know, in you know, New York and now they're in Atlanta. And, and uh, I'd say, great. How's it going? About the same. So I'd say, well, why did I leave my home to come give that presentation? Why did you spend time and money to come out and be a, in the audience of that presentation if six months later, life is the same now? And I, and I started to ask myself the question, what do I have to do so that more people in the audience actually shift or get a response or you know, you evolve to higher ground as a result of coming to the presentations? But then one time I'd, I'd be in that same uh, new place. And I run into somebody who said, Oh, you know, I saw you in New York, you know, six months ago. Great. How's it going? Ever since then, my entire life has changed. You know, I've, I, you know, this has gotten better and I've doubled the size of my business and I've done this and I've done that. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. These two people are sitting in the same audience at the same time, hearing the same thing. One has a complete transformation and upgrade in their life. The other one, no change. The difference isn't me. So if the difference isn't me, the difference has got to be them. What's different about them? And that's what got me thinking down this trail. So I'd open up my, my presentations, and, and I think I discussed this in the book, saying that really there's two types of experience that are going to happen. One is called the jacuzzi experience, you know, or hot tub experience, meaning when you're sitting in the hot tub, it feels good while it's happening, but the next day it has no impact on your life. The other is a pivotal experience. And a pivotal experience is that experience that once you have it, your life is never the same again. You're now on a new path that takes you to a new place. That's a new trajectory that you weren't otherwise on. And I would open up to my audiences in the beginning, not the end, and say, listen, you're going to make a decision right now. 
Are you going to have a jacuzzi experience or a pivotal experience? Now, most people would say, well, how do I know if I could have a pivotal experience? I haven't seen your presentation yet. I got to see if your stuff is any good. And then, I, and then I'd ask a question. This was the question that, that drove it home. I'd ask how many people in this audience right now know something that, that you could be doing that you're currently not doing that would make your life or your business better. And most of the hands go up. And, I, and incidentally, I'd say anybody who didn't raise your hand, you're lying. Everybody knows something that you could be doing that you're currently not doing that would make things better. It's not a matter of how good my material is. It's the wrong question. The question is, why aren't you already doing what you know? You showed up here with a purpose to hopefully make your life or your business better somehow. You already know things you could be doing that you're not doing that would make those things better. So why did you come here to learn more about what you're not going to do? And, and that drove it home saying, oh, wait a minute. He's right. I couldn't. And this is the third conference be I've been to all year. <laughs> you know, this is like my third conference yeah. and yeah. I did the same thing over and over yeah. again. Yeah. And people become seminar junkies. So they become what I call, you know, self-help junkies. You know, they're, they're constantly out looking, but nothing's getting done. So, uh, so the answer to that question is maximum tension. Why don't you do, I mean, you, they show a desire to improve. It's there. And they're spending time and money to come make that happen, but they're not doing what they know. The answer, why don't they do what they know is because they have, they're at maximum tension. When you're at maximum tension and one thing's pulling you in this direction, one thing's pulling you that direction, it's gone as far as it can go. There is no space in your life to do new things. You're stuck. So the whole point, and this is why I teach philosophy and, and identifying contradictions, because these are contradictory driving forces when you can line them up in a common direction. So they're all facing the same way. You know, your, your love life, your career, your health and fitness, your money, um, you know, your spirituality, all these important categories of your life, when you can line them up in a common direction, and now you want to put new things into a system, boom, it takes off like a shot because there's alignment, there's alignment as compared to contradiction and conflict. And when you get, so this is where the whole idea of learning how to think through, identify contradictions, create alignment, and then adding some, some energy into that system where that's where breakthroughs are, that's where transformation happens. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not hard to understand, um, you know, that, I, you know, you probably just from what I just said can understand it, but you do have to put some time and effort into, you know, uh, mastering these things so that you can utilize them as tools in your lives. Yeah. And it's, you know, you've said this before, it's simple, but it's not easy, right? It's a simple construct, but it's not easy. So this is, these are questions that you have to marinate on and think about and how you can remove some of these contradictions. Like when I, when I think about maximum tension, I think of like a multi-planar Vitruvian man, you know, like you think about like the guy with the hands and the legs being pulled and it's being pulled in the front, the coronal plane trans, like all the different planes. And you can't, you can't enter, add energy into that system, even if you have the, the roadmap. Like I used to, I used to judge, the, like I would have these seven figure and eight figure women that I would coach. And I'm like, you get it. Like you obviously there's, you can, you can, you can create success in your life. Why is it that you can't seem to overcome this inertia? And it's exactly what you're saying. It's this maximum tension. You can't add in, there's no wiggle room. Like you just, if you, you will supersede the finite you know, limit limitations of your matter. So 
How, so my question to you is you, you've talked about some of these different categories, these different verticals in your life, you know, personal you know, health and fitness, maybe your hobbies, like the guitar that you were talking about or playing on uh, musical instruments, relationships, um, career, spirituality. How can we begin to um, re- relieve some of this tension? So you said, if we can go from out here where we have like one's pulling you to the left, one's pulling you to the right, if we can get them all facing North, we can get them all facing, you know, whatever direction, how can you, what are some of the steps that someone who's listening can, can take to say, okay, I know that my love life and my career are at odds with each other right now. How can we bring those from malaligned to aligned? The answer, you know, is, uh, again, it's, it's a little bit wide, but the, the details, you know, become important. That's the practice. Um, and incidentally, one comment I'll make is that when somebody is at maximum tension, and they try to force a system at maximum tension to go further, the system, it, something breaks. And yeah. I've seen, yes. And what do I mean by breaks? Uh, you know, the maximum tension, it, it's sort of serving, it's holding you together saying, hey, you're at, you, this is as far as you can go given the way that you're playing right now. And if you want to go any further, you're gonna have to change some things. But if you try to stay the same way and force more energy into the system, that's where heart attacks happen, you know, disease happens divorces happen. That's where bad stuff happens. Um, so, uh, so you, you, you don't want to try to take a system at maximum tension called your life and force more energy into it because it will break apart in some way. Um, now, how do you solve it? Uh, it's through identification. It's basically, you know, asking the question in my financial life, what drives me? And then listing those things and what are the, you know, what are the greatest things? And we call these things premises. These are, this is what you're living your life from. A premise is a belief element that's driving your choices and actions, whether you know it or not. And it's interesting, um, you know, and, and I think people on any scale, uh, you know, can really get this. I, I literally was just having conversations in the past few days um, and it was kind of a little unnerving, but, you know, I, I disclose, but a well-known billionaire um, who read my book and then uh, had many, many questions for me and knew my book about as well as I did. So he, he really read the book and started asking about similar questions to what you're talking about and walking through it. I'm saying, wow, this guy um, on the finance and business side, you know, uh, has achieved you know, un, very uncommon success. And, uh, but he is trying to figure out the, you know, some of these other dimensions and how to get these things aligned, you know, so that he has the level of success he had in his career as he has in these other important categories of his life. And it rang through to him and it rang true to him. And it was interesting to have that conversation. And, you know, so when I had the conversation or had the conversation with him, it's now, well, let's look at premises around, your love relationship, you know, what are your, I know his premises are around business. They're pretty clear. That's why he was so very successful in his business career. But what are the premises in your spirituality? What are the premises in your love relationship? What are, meaning, what are the belief elements that are driving your choices and actions right now? Most people are unconscious to them. They don't know what they are. They have to start identifying them. And where most of us got them were from our mothers, fathers, teachers, and preachers, right? That, you know, that, that the, we've adopted them as kids unwittingly and they live in there. Rich people are thieves. Don't try to bite off more than you can chew. I mean, all kinds of things could be in there. You know, relationships, you know, it's an old ball and chain. You know, it, it, there's 
so many things that you learn um, unwittingly over time that are accumulated, again, like a junk heap in your subconscious that have assembled as your philosophy, which means it's your view of reality. And then they've gone unassessed, unchallenged. And then that's where these things start to sabotage. If you're that person that is, you know, on the brink of success in any important category of your life, and it keeps you know, going back down to a, a, you know, what your norm is as compared to a breakthrough, that's you're sabotaging it over and over again. And why is that happening? It's because you've got premises you're holding that are that are unhealthy, that are contradictory um, and need to be addressed and, and changed. The good news is you can change your mind. The good news is you can literally adopt new premises willfully, consciously. And once you start living in congruency with aligned premises, that's where maximum tension ends and new level of the game begins. So, uh, so that would be in, in short, I mean, you know, in the book, I, I get into a lot more detail and kind of exercise around this, but in short, it is identify what the key premises are in each of the important categories of your life, see where they conflict with each other and how your actions may conflict with what these values and premises are and get them aligned. Uh, so that's the process, of course, doing it is not something you can cover in, in a few minutes, but that's that's the overview of it. Yeah. And what's so exciting is that you can change them, right? Like you can, ha you can have been raised in a family where there was enmeshment and codependency and the it was a toxic love relationship or, you know, I'm just giving an example in the relationship category. And you can redefine that in your current uh, relationship or what you want in a future relationship. Like you are not your thoughts. And I think that a lot of people, we think we, we, we have these thoughts. We think that they belong to us, but just as you were saying, it's like the fab four, right? The mothers, fathers, teachers, preachers that have implanted in some ways a virus, right? It's a, it's sort of this mind virus that sort of expands and has its tentacles in all of our uh, beliefs that, that end up driving um, our behaviors. So let's actually talk, let's actually dissect philosophy because this was actually one of my favorite parts of the philosophy formula. And you do this so magnificently in the book as well. You call this your 5P expansion model. And in the book, it looks like a pyramid. So maybe we can start from the bottom and then work our way um, up to the top. And there's some really interesting things that you talk about, particularly with psychology uh, and with purpose. But let's, let's start with philosophy and, and what, that, what that means. Two things I give in the book are the uh, 5P expansion sequence, which you described, as well as um, the five branches of philosophy. So uh, and, and the five branches of philosophy, the philosophy chapter of the book is the one that um, I had most uh, concern or anxiety about, I guess I'd say, because uh, it's um, you know, when I'm, when I'm teaching this to an audience, I can read the audience and figure out, you know, are they getting it? And if not, I'll, yes. I can dig in deeper. Not get, you know, I, I could literally read the audience and, and if I gave that lecture, you know, 20 times, it might be 20 different versions of it, depending on who's sitting in front of me. But in the book, I don't I don't get that ability, uh, but I've been very heartened by the feedback I've gotten from people who have read it, said, oh, wow, that was really a journey and very um, unusual. I mean, there's really nobody else writing or talking about this in particular. And um, <clears throat> so uh, so the five branches of philosophy add up to the first P of the 5P expansion sequence. If you can imagine kind of a triangle or a pyramid and there's five Ps, the very base, the foundation of it is philosophy. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. 
I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. There's nothing more primary than philosophy because you know, as soon as you have a thought, <clears throat> as soon as you identify something, as soon as you form a concept, you're in the realm of philosophy. So, uh, so that's why we put that at the base of that pyramid. There are five branches of, uh, of philosophy, at least in the, in the way that I do it. And, and they, these branches are sequential, meaning uh, many, if, if you read philosophy books or take philosophy courses, they'll talk about these varying branches kind of independently. But there is a there's a sequence to the utilization of the branches to form thoughts and 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 to you know figure things out. So the five branches I'll just go through kind of quickly. First branch is metaphysics. Metaphysics is could be defined as your view of the nature of reality, your view of the nature of the universe. Um, the the question metaphysics might ask is where am I? What is this place? So that's kind of the, the, the foundational branch of philosophy. Second branch of philosophy is epistemology. Epistemology is the theory of knowledge. Where does knowledge come from? So if my first question is where am I? The second question is how do I know it? What are my rules of evidence, if you will? Quick example, um, kind of interesting. I, I was uh, in Kentucky this past weekend at a, a conference of um, uh, a bunch of medical physicians and, and the whole thing was on brain um, optimization and performance and, and heightened um, states of consciousness. Uh, and they put me on a panel because I'm in the midst of doing a docu-series right now on psychedelics and uh, we tentatively psych- titled Psychedelics Revealed. I'm not sure if that will be the title when we release it next year. Uh, but um, they want you know some input because the the, the conversation around psychedelics and, and enhanced states of consciousness, et cetera, is a pretty hot topic right now. Yes. Um, and I remember you know uh, as we're having the interaction with the panel and the audience, and these are again a bunch of medical doctors uh, who are um, really uh, steeped in the world of, of um, you know performance. A lot of them are you know, uh, have functional medical practices, that type of thing. So they're, they're interesting, the type of things I like to measure and how they practice. But, uh, you know, the thing that was coming back was saying, well, you know, we have to be skeptics and, and, uh, you know, we need to be skeptical of such things. And, you know, what are the protocol? You know, they had all these questions around what it was, I was discussing at least and some of the other panelists and, and psychedelics. And the thing I said that I think kind of hit them here, I said, when it comes to your view of, medical practice, diagnosis and treatment of disease, et cetera. You know, you're talking, they kept talking about being evidence-based, but I have a question for you. What are your rules of evidence? (laughs) Because whatever rules of evidence you have when you're talking about um, vitamin vitamin C IVs for uh, immunotherapy or other such things, 
I said, that's one set of rules. We're talking, you know, those, those epistemological, if you will, that's the, the, again, epistemology, theory of knowledge, your philosophy around evidence or your epistemological positions relative to assessing this have, to, you know, your old uh, premises around that have to be thrown out. You need a new set to be able to enter this realm called psychedelics. It's a different world. So anyway, it was, it was kind of an interesting conversation, but pretty quickly, these people who want to be kind of more hardcore uh, uh, materialist in their evidence-based construct, when you start talking about states of consciousness and other such things, you need a new set of rules or a different philosophical perspective to look at this. So that's also very mechanistic as well, right? And there is a there is a place yeah. for that sort of inductive type of thinking where you are very specific and like I put in this, you know, it's like the black you do like this intervention and I want this outcome, but there's all, when you talk right. You're talking about psychedelics, as you very well know, because you're producing this, you have to be looking at a broader scope, a broader data set and different types of data to be able to come come up with these outcomes or what what was going to be an appropriate right. outcome for these people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it starts it starts with your it starts with your first your view of your reality. Right. We're talking and in this case, we're talking about plant medicines. And uh, and I had sitting next to me, you know, a, a, a indigenous Indian chief, you know, a, a guy that you know is a, is a is, you know chief, and they have their ceremonies. He would discuss, it. yeah. So there's the spirituality kind of comes into this thing. These are plant medicines now. So you know, is your view of reality that there's intelligence built into these things that are proportional to the person who's consuming it? And then if that's true as far as your view of reality, then your rules of evidence, you know, change as far as what you would, you know, look at as evidence to say that these are positive or good things to do. So, you know, but this applies to your love relay. What, what is your view of reality behind love relation? My wife and I picked one uh, saying that, uh, you know, we believe that legendary romance is, is possible. That was our, our core value was we want to have a legendary romance. So legendary romance is possible. That's a view of reality as compared to some, most people's view of reality is that over time, relationships degenerate and become tolerated in order to last as compared to saying that they grow and grow and grow. And I'm like just a couple of days away from, from our, uh, our, uh, 20th, 20th anniversary, you know, we've been married 20 years. So now, and, and being able to hold that premise and then say, well, how do we know it? Well, we would, would rules of evidence saying that a legendary romance is possible. So we went out and looked at other either in history or in the lives and the people we know, what kind of evidence is there in existence to validate that that premise is real? And, and then you kind of work forward from there. So, so basically what you believe and why you believe it, if you believe in your healing, it comes to your, your health. Chiropractors, we say that the body is self-healing and self-regulating. The nervous system is the master system and controller of that body. That, that's our view of reality. That's our metaphysical view. Uh, our epistemology it, it starts with many things, but one is deduction. If the body is self-healing and self-regulating, if the nervous system is the master system and controller of the body, then it stands to reason that if you interfere with nervous system function, you interfere with the ability for the body to heal and regulate. That's an epistemological view. That's based on deductive uh, logic, you know, uh, to kind of the philosophical term for it. And, uh, and that, and, but there's also inductive research that can be done other things that provide evidence. So, so for whatever category there is about money, about career, about love, about anything, all the help, all these things have metaphysical views, meaning views of reality, epistemological premises, meaning your rules of evidence or, you know, how you validate 
what you think you know or what your view of reality is. So the third branch of philosophy, just kind of doing these you know, pretty quick, is ethics. Ethics provides a human being with a code of values and therefore will be a guide to your actions. So once I know what my view is as far as reality, my metaphysics, where am I? And then I have my epistemology, how do I know it, my rules of evidence? Then the next question I have to ask is, okay, well, if that's in place, so now what do I do? And that's ethics. And as I said, ethics provides a human being with a code of values, therefore will be a guide to your action. So if you're gonna create core values, like for companies, core values, relationship values, you know, any of these types of things where we talk about values, values comes from that third branch of philosophy as this purpose, uh, which we'll explain in a minute. So that's, but you, people try to start there and you really have to have these other things solidified before you're ready to have a, a firm conversation around values. Once you know your values, now the next branch of philosophy is politics. And of course, we're in about as polarizing and as heated a political environment as we'll ever see in our lives. And, and you know, and you'd have to, why? Why, are, why is it so polar? And now you have to understand how, you know, people say, well, philosophy has nothing to do with politics. Philosophy, politics is literally a branch of philosophy. If you have a everything to stand, do with it, yeah, yeah. Every, it, 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 and the problem is people who try to be political who don't have a philosophy, because then all they have is the ends justifies the means, and it's it's situational ethics, meaning well, whatever the situation is, that's going to tell me what I want to do politically. And of course, that's about as as evil and toxic as one could possibly imagine. Politics is supposed to be based on, on, on values and principles that are established in an underlying philosophy. When you look at our constitution, you look at you know, the United States and you look at you know, the declarations that were made as views of reality that translated into a political system. <laughs> it was based on principles that were philosophical principles that led to the, the, the politics as compared to politics just being plucked out of the air by any range of, uh, range of the moment whim that some individual has. So politics, you know, is, um, and politics isn't just, you know, your, 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 political environment in your country, you know, there's politics in your career and your profession There's politics everywhere, but knowing where to stand politically is based on your philosophy. And if you don't have a philosophy, then you're, you're, you're not a very um, either effective. And actually I shouldn't say effective because there's some pretty ugly politicians that are very effective, but uh, let's say that you're, you're, you aren't a politician. You're not somebody who's advocating for political views who has much of substance beneath them. That's probably the best way right. to say that. Right. And then once you have those things lined up, your, your metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, politics, the culmination of all those is aesthetics. Aesthetics is the artistic representation of your philosophical views. So what does it look like? How would I represent this? If I went to a play and, I, and I've done this and, and the play is about depravity and ugliness and you know, the human condition being something that is you know, uh, impotent, I don't have to meet the author of that play to know what their philosophical views are. Or I can go to a play that inspires, reveals the human spirit, shows overcoming challenges and adversity to achieve great things. Again, I don't have to meet that author to know what their views are. That's true for a sculpture. That's true for a painting. That's true of anything that is proposed or put into existence 
uh, that's proposed to be art or something of aesthetic value. And quite frankly, if I look at relationships or businesses, they, they hold aesthetic value for me. I can look at something that is like a work of art. It was a uh, book, Mr. Fuller, who said, I might be paraphrasing a little bit, but he said, uh, when I'm working on a problem and trying to solve it, I do not think of beauty. But once I have a solution to the problem, if it is not beautiful, I know it's not true. <laughs> so it's a matter that there is an aesthetic in, in truth. There is an aesthetic in life and in existence. And what your aesthetic dispositions are is going to reflect what your philosophy is. I can't uh, draw, I can't paint, so I'm not, I'm not aesthetic at all in any of those areas. I already admitted uh, publicly here that you know, I'm not very adept at guitar and piano, although I like to play, uh, and that's sort of an aesthetic expression, but uh, I can give one hell of a lecture or communicate concepts or, or even you know, uh, organized concepts. Oh, that's art. That's another. There's prose and there's tone and there's rhythm and cadence. That's all artistic. Yes. Yeah. That's my art. That's your art. Okay. So that's philosophy. <laughs> that's yes. that's, that's so the now, base. Yes. Let's talk about how ethics. That's the base. So, yes. And, and as, as you now can see is a big, big thing. Yes. Uh, and don't let it, don't let it overwhelm you though. If you can really put it down to the bright side, you, you, you can start organizing your philosophy today and you'll see benefits tomorrow. And I've been doing it now for over 30 years and I'm seeing, still seeing benefits. You never, you, it's a never ending process. Just get started and it pays dividends right away. From philosophy, emerging out of philosophy, that third branch ethics is purpose. And purpose is the object for which something exists. What makes a human being different than any other form of animal on the planet is the fact that a human being can choose a purpose. A dog cannot choose a purpose for its life. If it could, it probably would not live with you. Uh, you know, a cow cannot choose a purpose for its life. If it could, there'd probably be no such thing as McDonald's. But what makes us different than any other form of animal is the fact that we can contemplate and choose and move in the direction of a purpose. Now, if we don't do that, if we're not so-called purpose-driven, then we live like every other animal. All animals live in, in survival mode, survival mentality. All other animals, and this is, I think, where the turn of the century, um, of the last century, uh, psychologists got it wrong with the you know, behaviorism, is that their, their basic comment on this, their metaphysical view, is that mankind lives in the seeking of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. And if you're living by pain-pleasure principle, you're living in survival. You're just, all you're doing every day is trying to find some pleasure by chance and trying to avoid some pain if you can. And that is not a purpose. With purpose, every day you recognize that there is gonna be some pain, there's gonna be some pleasure, but your constant companion is always purpose. It's the true north, it's the compass setting, it moves you in a direction. So once you have your philosophy, from that philosophy derives your purpose, that purpose now starts to give you direction in the most important areas of your life, as we already cited, not just your career, but it can be your relationships, your, you personally, spirituality is a very big one, you know, having a purpose in that. All these things uh, matter, and your purpose is gonna really, in large part, dictate are you going to have an existence of survival or are you going to live in some kind of a passionate and a, a passionate way that creates achievement that fulfills you? 
I think it's important to highlight why purpose is important because just like pain and pleasure, it's fleeting. Like you will have your, your purpose is the, the constant. If you have defined what your purpose is, it never goes away. It's just like motivation, right? Like when I talk to my women, it's like some days you're going to wake up and you're not going to want to work out. And other days you're, you know, you're going to be so excited to work on, you know, whatever task I've given you, the motivation, the pain, the pleasure, those things all come and go. But if you have a clearly defined purpose, it doesn't matter what the day brings. You are able to continue on that steadfast. You are able to continue to persevere and to have that consistency and that perseverance in order to actualize, you know, whatever it is that the the goal might be or that you've defined for yourself. I think that's really important. It is. I mean, purpose is the rocket fuel. I mean, that's the stuff that makes yeah. that that fuels everything in your life. And if you don't have it, like you said, then you become uh, a whim, uh, what Randy's called whim worshiper. Mm. Uh, I feel like working out today. I don't feel like working out. You, know, you, you just start to worship all the whims that you have as compared to having some discipline direction, you know, toward a specific thing that you're trying to achieve. So I think it's a very good point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from that now, those are the ultimate causes. The first effect is psychology. So this is where I, I, I am at variance with many of the um, self-help uh, gurus, you know, and I'm not trying to, um, how can I put it? Uh, I'm not trying to be controversial or trying to put them down, but very, very often people try to get you to achieve in your life on a, uh, uh, on an ongoing basis through state management, psychological state management. And I think psych- psychological state management is a useful tool, tool for small episodes of time. I mean, to give an example without trying to brag, I'm a two-time AAU national karate champion. I had to get into certain levels of state management to be able to win these fights and these tournaments. Um, So it was a useful tool to get into a heightened state for a brief period of time to to achieve something that was a high level achievement. Um, I think it was uh, one of the Russian uh, authors, it might've been uh, Chekhov that said, um, any idiot can handle a crisis it's this day-to-day stuff that wears you out. <laughs> and I think that, um, and this is the whole point, is that your, your psychology, your psycho-emotional states, for the most part, are not primaries, they're secondaries, meaning you, they're, not the, they're not the thing that you start with, they're responses. Uh, the way that I say this is that uh, your philosophical premises will shape your psychological experiences. And if you're trying, and I'll give an example in a moment, but if you're trying to use psychological states as the way for you to achieve long, long-term success in any area of your life, you're, you're, you're going to, you're in for some heartache. Um, it, it, it can do temporary things. And that's, again, that's that self-help junkie, that roller coaster. I go to the seminar, I'm up for two weeks, three weeks, and it fades and I'm down. And I go to the next, I read the book, I'm up and then I'm down and I'm up. And so you find yourself on this roller coaster ride of ups and downs as compared to trending consistently in a direction of, of heightened achievement. So an example I would give uh, to validate the, the premise that your philosophical premises will shape your psychological experience is this. Uh, let's say that you have two people in the room. This is not, uh, I'm not advocating for anything politically here. I'm just giving an example because politics is on everybody's mind. And on one side of the room, you have a very, let's call them liberally 
minded person. It's a liberal uh, oriented person in their politics. On the other side, you have a very conservative person, a conservative oriented person in their politics. And in the middle, you have a, a head of state that is signing into law a new bill that's going to radically uh, raise taxes on the populace um, and redistribute wealth. And in that situation, the person who's more liberal in their philosophy and politics, what's their emotional state going to be? Joy. So glad this is finally happening. We've been working towards this. It's going to be a much more fair and just society as, as you know, people who don't have as much uh, you know, advantage can now get better you know, advantage and benefits. On the other side, you have a conservative minded person who is angry and worried and like, how can they just appropriate things from people who produce this wealth and just redistribute it to people who didn't. That's not fair. It's inappropriate. That's the decline of society. They both have their own conversation going on in their head. Think about this for a moment. Two people simultaneously and accurately seeing the same thing happen at the exact same time, a person signing this law. So they both are seeing it accurately. They're having completely opposite emotional responses. How can they have such an opposing emotional response to the exact same thing? What's the difference between them? The difference between them is what? Their philosophy. Your philosophical premises will shape your psychological experiences. They don't start with the anger. They don't start with the joy. It's a response to what they're observing. Oh, you see that with what the masks observe. as well, like with masks, it's the same right. stimulus. And it's like one side, oh. someone saying, I can't believe you're wearing a mask. This is against my, my freedom. And, you know, the virus is orders of magnitude smaller than the perforations in the mask. And the other person is saying, well, you're helping the community and you're protecting yourself and your family and same stimulus, you know, different, different response. Different view of reality, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a perfect example. Um, you know, the whole mask issue is it's people have different philosophies. Now, some people might say, "Well, my philosophy is you know based on science." Well, you know what? There's scientific arguments for both sides of that. Now we get into your epistemology, right? So you're saying yes. my view of reality is that the masks are a joke. They're 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 inconsequential and they're a sign of control. And why do I believe that? Well, there are dozens and dozens of articles saying that the masks cause more harm than good. On the other side, you got people saying the masks help prevent droplets from being spread, but there's arguments. And, and, but you could see, like you said, just looking at a mask, somebody has a response, two different people can have exact opposite responses and they're usually pretty heated responses based on that philosophy. So that's another perfect example, how your psycho-emotional states are a response to what you're perceiving as it's filtered through your philosophy. It's yeah. a really, really good one. I like that. And I had, no. I had Dr. Kelly Brogan on the podcast as well. And she was talking about, so she's a psychiatrist um, talking about psychological states. And one of the things that she said, which can seem like a personal attack, but she, it's not, she said, you know, depression, people who are depressed. So psychological state is always 
an appropriate response with the emphasis I'm making on response to your environment. So it could be unresolved trauma. It could be, you know, nutrient deficiency. It could be environmental toxicants, whatever. It's a response. It's not that there's something wrong with you. You don't start with the depression. It's that you respond to the environment. So I like, I really like your your view on psychology because it, it is one that I hold as well in that you have the power to your, your, your philosophical premise is going to dictate your psychological state. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And I I know Kelly and and love her work. I think she's, you know, just a phenomenal human being. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Um, And and that's, and that really is a, a good characterization of it all. So once you have your philosophy, your purpose, your psychology, the next effect is procedures. And this is really important. Uh, again, a lot of people teach seminars, let's just say in business, uh, but it could be, again, you have procedures in your relationship procedures for how you do your finances, procedures and, you know, uh, and rituals in your spirituality, perhaps, and so on. But let's just look at business for a moment. So um, a lot of times people say, hey, come pay a few thousand dollars to, you know, come take this seminar on marketing procedures, let's just say. And uh, and you're going to grow your business by uh, you know this much because you're going to learn this new procedure. Now, I think what everybody would understand, if I take 10 businesses, I teach them all the exact same marketing procedure. They all run that procedure exactly the same way I taught it. What's going to happen? They're going to get different, 10 different results because it's not the procedure that gets the result. It's who the person is doing the procedure that gets the result. It's who the business is doing the procedure that gets the result and the business or the person is defined by their philosophy. Businesses have a philosophy also, incidentally, you know, as you know, all entities do. So if it's a business, they have a business philosophy. If it's, an, if it's an individual, they have their individual philosophy and hopefully those two things are aligned. So I call procedures an effect because procedures in and of themselves don't create success. However, if your procedures that you're currently doing are in contradiction to your philosophy and purpose, they'll inhibit your success. So taking, so procedures are important. They must be aligned. When your procedures are aligned with your philosophy and purpose, you'll be shocked at how quickly things go. That's why I call your stand is your brand. Cause when you, when you now have a stand, you have a purpose, you have your values, you're taking a stand either as a business or an individual, and you proceduralize everything that you do in alignment with that stand, that's where big things happen. That's where breakthroughs happen. That's where exciting things happen. And, um, and it's something that shockingly, most people and most companies don't really think through and think about. And to me, it's the greatest opportunity for breakthrough of, of anything else that I can think of and that I've seen or that I know. So that's where, so procedures are important. They don't create success in and of themselves, but they manage the effect of your philosophy and purpose. The procedures will now manage the effect of that. And if your procedures are aligned, they're going to help grow it, take it to the moon. And if they're not aligned, they're going to repress it. They're going to keep it down. So that's the fourth P. The fifth P is the natural outcropping. Then, if, So if you line up, you know, that's, it's, this is all about alignment. It's all about congruency. When your philosophy, purpose, psychology, procedures all align, the natural outcome to that is prosperity. And the thing that people need to know more than anything else is that prosperity is the ultimate effect of who you are or should be. 
not the cause. Most people turn it upside down and they start with prosperity as their, as their foundation saying, this is what I want. And they try to back into a philosophy based on that. It's reversing cause and effect and it never ends well. It's never sustainable. And, and uh, that's one of the biggest epiphanies I've seen in the rooms where I've taught this for years is when people realize, oh my God, I've got it all backwards. I've had it upside down. I got to start with philosophy and purpose. And that leads me to prosperity, not start with, okay, I want to make $2 million this year. Now, how can I back into a philosophy that will allow me to do that? You know, you start with the philosophy and purpose. And then that, you know, and if you line these things up procedurally, you can have the goal to say the outcome I want to make is, you know, the $2 million or, you know, pick whatever the number is. But the thing to understand, the people who generated the greatest wealth in their lives and I just had the experience again, I was just talking a couple of days ago being with a billion. I mean, this guy, this person is a, you know, a, a billionaire and they have more money than they can ever spend in I don't know how many lifetimes, you know, the private jets, everything, uh, multiple homes everywhere. And this person is now like thinking about, okay, what's my next move? I want to, you know, what, it's not because it's more money. He, this person's got a purpose that makes them want to value create on a constant basis and contribute and continue to do it. And you know, rather than take it easy, he wants to work harder. Um, the richest people in the world that you know, I used to talk about when Bill Gates was the richest person in the world. Uh, you know, I, I would give the example. Microsoft went public, I think, in 1983. He was worth somewhere around 350, maybe 400 million dollars. Maybe it was 84, somewhere around there. Uh, if, if prosperity is is your uh, ultimate uh, goal, I mean that that's prosperity is is your cause. It's your purpose alone. Just prosperity. How many more days do you have to work when you're worth 400 million dollars? When he was worth 50 billion dollars, he still went to work every single day. And I'm not saying this to happy. I know a lot of people are not a fan of, of Bill Gates activities, especially in, in the vaccine and control arena, which I'm also one of those people I'm not a fan of that. But um, I'm just citing behavior here, saying that when he was worth $50 billion, he went to work every day. I mean, you know how much $50 billion of personal worth? I mean, it's an incomprehensible number. Yeah. And, this, and he didn't even go to work as a CEO anymore. He went to work as the company's chief software architect, his strength, what he loved, what he always did. It was his purpose from the very, very beginning. And he kept doing it. There is no amount of money that was going to buy Bill Gates out of going to work. If $50 billion won't do it, nothing will do it. Exactly. Uh, you know, Michael yeah. Jordan, how many $40 million Nike contracts do you need before you don't have to go play basketball anymore? There's no amount of money that would buy Michael Jordan off the court when he could still play. He was going to keep going and going and going. The point being that prosperity needs to be an effect of who you are, not the cause. If it's the cause of who you are, it never goes well, rarely goes well. And if it does, it's not sustainable. So it needs to be the ultimate effect of your philosophy and purpose, not the cause of it. I'm, you know, do not have the wealth of Bill Gates, but even in just producing this podcast, there's a cost to producing this podcast. I don't have advertisers for a reason. I, you know, it's just me, the mic, my network. And it's because I have a view that I feel needs to be expressed or is underrepresented. And I do it at my own cost. Like I don't make money from the podcast. And in fact, I would actually say that it's, it's a, you know, it costs money. Um, but it's because I have a very strong opinion. I have a very strong premise and I have a very strong purpose around empowering people to make informed decisions around their health, which is why I want to talk to people like you and Kelly and Sarah Godfrey and all the people that we've had on the 
on the podcast. So I'm also really happy to spend money to be able to do this. Like it's also for me also a very, um, and I don't know if that fits into the five P formula at all, but I just wanted to highlight that, you know, in, in the same way that Bill Gates couldn't, you can't pay him enough to stay home, like $50 million or whatever, or $50 billion or whatever. If I was told that I'll never make money off of this, even if my platform grows and I have, you know, millions and millions, I would still do the pot. It, it wouldn't matter. Like I would still do this because it's that important to me. Yeah. I mean, I used to say, I mean, how many bad movies does Sylvester Stallone have to make? You know, <laughs> it, 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 you know there's nothing that's going to prevent that guy from making. And I, I say that's something cheap because I'm actually a big fan of his movies. But, uh, yeah, but there's nothing that's going to prevent that guy from making movies. It, more money just means expanding the range of the purpose to right. the person who's on purpose. Yeah. It's not, it's not money isn't a way to stop the purpose. Money is a way to expand the range of the purpose. So with more resources, you would probably put more, more resources into the podcast to grow it yes. and grow the audience to get the message out as compared to saying, okay, I have enough money where I don't have to do this anymore. Yeah. You see, so that, it, 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 you know, it's interesting how people will get it when I say it, but they don't apply it truly in their life when they start to look at it because they find themselves doing things for the money still. And it's like, and that's survival. When you're doing things for the money only, that's survival as compared to saying, I have a purpose. And you know, it's very simple. The bigger the purpose, you know, the bigger the outcome as far as resources. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said in the book, when I, when I show the reconciliation between material wealth and spiritual wealth, which is you know, a big area that people want to work in, is that um, you, know, you will attract to you the material resources proportional to the strength of your spiritual purpose. And if that spiritual purpose is real, you, you'll be shocked at how many resources will come at you, you know, as compared to uh, it not being real. And I look now and it's, it's kind of interesting that, um, you know, at this point in my career, the amount of expansion that's going on, the amount of, 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 of income, what have you, um, in multiple different things that I do. Um, and, uh, but uh, what I'm realizing more and more is that it's not about, Hey, how much can I have? It's about what kind of resources can I harness to do the work that I want to do? You know, when you, when you pass survival, you think in a different way mm-hmm. and it's about being a steward of resources to do something in the world as compared to saying, what can I possess? At least it is for me because those are my values. Um, and when you shift that perspective, it's, it's amazing how energetically things shift and then what you attract into your life. Well, it's funny. I, I've often found this to be true, that money is just an amplifier of the the person's, you know, there's this, we were talking a little bit of like rich people are thieves. And I mean, I definitely heard that growing up, but as I have met people with extraordinary amounts of wealth, uh, what I have seen that contradicts that premise is that money just amplifies who you already are. So if you're just a jerk or you're an asshole, you're just going to be a bigger asshole with more means to more means to do that. And if you are someone who is really concerned around affecting change, you are going to use your resources, the more power and influence and resources that you have in order to execute on that. So that's actually been something that's been very, um, uh, eye-opening for me because I was, you know, growing up like kind of middle-class family, but like the rich people, that's not us. And, you know, in order to do that, they must have done, you know, shady work or whatever it is, stomped on the backs of other people. And that's actually not been my experience. That's not been what I have uh, experienced at all. So I, I think there's a growing spirituality around um, wealth 
uh, and wealth accumulation and what it means um, that maybe didn't exist. And it's in, it's, I don't believe that to be a moral mandate. I think people who produce great value in the world and, are, and, and make great wealth because of it, you know, have no moral obligation outside of that to do particular things. But what I'm finding is that, um, that more and more people who have great wealth are really sitting around and contemplating what can we do to help humanity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let, let's talk about creative destruction. I really thought that this was very interesting words put together. Uh, so again, some of your prose and some of the artistic uh, words coming together. Can you explain what, why this is also very important as well? Why is it that in order to ascend, um, we, we need to descend? Why is it that we explain what creative destruction is and how that plays out in, in actualizing our goals in our life? Yeah, so this is one of my favorite chapters in the book, and that's why it's at the end of the book, because um, my own experience, um, you know, now, and I've had decades of experience, has shown me that uh, over time, you know, there's entropy, you know, second law of thermodynamics, things go towards disorganization, disassociation, disintegration, disease, what have you. So <clears throat> things can't stay the same. They, you know, they have to change. And if you want to avoid entropy, you got to increase organization, et cetera. Um, and I've gone through some burndowns, most especially maybe when, when I sold the company I, that I started and ran for 23 years, <clears throat> I didn't realize how much my identity was wrapped up in it. And, and when, once I was going to sell that, you know, I tell a whole story in a book about, you know, you know, literally ending up in a hospital in, in, Italy with anxiety and I never had anxiety. I thought I was having a stroke. I had no idea what was going on. I realized it was the fact that uh, my, my deal was going to close and I was no longer going to be the CEO of a company that I ran for 23 years and put my whole identity into and, and put into the world. So, um, and I realized that I had to burn down that old identity <laughs> to have the new me emerge. So it's really the story of the Phoenix and that, uh, you know, what does the phoenix do? It comes up, it dips down into the fire, burns itself down so that something more beautiful can emerge next. And that's why it's creative destruction. I gave many examples, uh, or at least some examples in the book, the Beatles, at the, at the peak of Beatlemania, you know, I'll just give one here, but the peak of Beatlemania, I'm talking about sold out stadiums everywhere, making money that, you know, was they couldn't even count, they were making so much of it, having, <clears throat> the beetle image, the beetle haircut, the, you know, the, the black suits, black thin tie, white shirts, the sound that they had. The, the mania was so enormous that you couldn't even hear them hardly play in the stadiums because people were screaming so loud. And it, it seemed like that train was going to go on for many, many years. There, there was going to be no, uh, I, I think, stopping it. it you know, and, and the demand was just something that is unprecedented uh, ever. Nobody's seen the likes of it. So, what the Beatles do at the height of Beatlemania is they quit. They stopped touring. They went into the studio and they created what many, you know, for a year, I think they spent most time on an album and they came out and created what many believe to be maybe the greatest album of all time, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And in Sgt. Pepper's, it was completely different. It was the first like thematic album. It was the first time that there were certain ways of production and sound, et cetera. The haircuts, the suits, the look, the sound was all good. They burned it all down. At the height of their success, they burned it all down 
and created something new, more beautiful, more interesting, and more aligned with who they were at that point in their lives. They weren't those, those four kids from Liverpool who started this whole thing. Uh, yeah, at that point in time, they weren't those kids anymore. Their identities had shifted, their values had shifted, their views have shifted. And it was time for them to do something different that was more aligned with who they were at that point. <clears throat> of course, sounds like a big risky thing, but in the end, they created something and continued to reinvent themselves over time. And I believe we all have to do that. Uh, I, many of the people who were my mentors who 30 years ago were giving a certain talk, I look at them today, you know, 30 years older with the same kind of suit, same kind of tie, giving the same kind of talk that they did 30 years ago. They're, they're just never changed. They never grew. They never transformed. And even though the work they do is great and was great, there's been no, no redefinition, no, no emergence, no Phoenix to rise out of the ashes. And I have sometimes done this proactively, I've sometimes done this out of pain where I was just broken down to a point where it's like I had to take a step back and question my own identity, question what I was doing, question my back, question everything and burn it all down and start over again into something new. Um, and I, I think it's an opportunity for us as human beings because, we, again, we can do that. We can contemplate our life, contemplate our purpose and, and literally burn down the old so that something new and better can emerge. And so in, in that book on creative destruction, I give some what I think are some pretty um, uh, poignant examples of you know, that process and what it means and then my own personal experiences around it. And I, I believe if people will practice creative destruction, um, uh, it's, it's kind of, for me, I used to be very, very objective driven, managed by objective sculpture, and it's still good things to do, but now I'm much more enamored with and stimulated by the unknown saying, Hmm, like my wife and I, you know, we'd have five personal objectives, five business objectives. We'd pick them every quarter. And then we had, we had our annual ones for every year. <clears throat> At this point, we just evolved where we no longer, we have one personal objective, that's it. <laughs> our only personal objective, because our health and fitness routines are down. Our, you know, all the things we do, I mean, we've worked on it for so many years, after 20 years of marriage, it's like, hey, you know, I don't know that we have to keep picking stuff. Let's have some fun. We call it getting, we call it stepping on the magic carpet. We go for a magic carpet ride. <laughs> so our one, yeah, our, our one objective is hold space for something great to happen. And let's, let's be surprised rather than have to always try to dictate an outcome. Why don't we just make sure we're holding enough space in our lives that something can show up unexpected and delightful. And, and what I can tell you about that, it's always better than I could have imagined. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of addicted to that right now, as far as that disposition of life, you can't start there. You have to run the laps. You have to do the homework. You have to, you have to learn how to do the other stuff first clear it all out, clean it all out. But once you get to a certain level, you can now say, hmm, rather than me trying to drive life where I want to go, I can just hold space and let life take me where it wants me to go. <laughs> and it, it, there's a lot of fun in it.
There's a bit of surrender to that as well. Like you're talking about being very much in your masculine energy, objective, objective, objective. And now it's like, I'm just going to surrender and play, which is really, it's really lovely to see that marriage of those two energies. And I, I was laughing before because on the podcast, I often will say, okay, we're going to go on a geeky magic carpet ride today. So we will often go, like, I like to marry geek and magic. Those are my two sort of opposing things. Like I'm very, like, I want to know the science and the pathways and the this and the that. And then there's also magic to it. There's also a divinity to, you know, health and, and optimization. So as I say, one of my favorite quotes from Einstein is, is that uh, there's two ways to go through life as if nothing is a miracle or everything is. Ugh. And, uh, and to me, it's all a miracle. Yeah. Well, you actually just, just uh, piggybacking on that Einstein comment. I, you had said something, um, I think you had just said it off the cuff. It was many years ago. I've held on to it. It was so profound. It was the idea of far side simplicity. So you were talking about this when we talk about like something that's really easy, you know, and we think about the difference when we're kind of distinguishing between simple and elegant, um, you know, one plus one is two. That's like a pretty simple, you know, not a lot of thought has gone into that. Uh, what you have created here with this 5P expansion model, you know, integrating the philosophical branches and how that drives the entrepreneur's heart. And, you know, and in, in, in not just an entrepreneur, but any anyone who's really looking to up level their life is what uh, you, and I don't know if it was Einstein who had said it, but you were talking about far side simplicity and you'd given the example of Einstein's equation, like E equals MC squared is this incredibly simple equation, but there has been so much subtraction. There's been so much addition through subtraction to get to that far side simplicity. And that's actually what I think, uh, you have done here with, uh, with this book. So, uh, I just wanted to, but in wrapping this, just thank you for your time, uh, said at the top of our conversation, how impactful you have been in my thinking as a doctor. Uh, you've been sort of an indirect mentor to me. I've been interacting with you and you're like, I was at total solution like 15 years ago in philosophy formula and just, uh, always going to be, um, always going to be cheering you on. So thank you so much for coming on here and teaching my listeners, like how to think like what, what, a gift in 2020 and into 2021 to teach someone how to evaluate, how to think for themselves when we are, you know, bombarded with lots of opposing messages and lots of confusion and fear. And so I want I wanted to thank you for that. Thank you. Stephanie, thanks so much for having me on and, and, and for just knowing the material so well to be able to kind of uh, coax it, you know, out of me through this experience was really great. Um, I, I think it is, you know, just in summary, now more than ever, it's time to take a stand. Um, I, I don't think we can equivocate now in our lives. So, uh, you know, and how people perceive you, your brand, you, you know, whether your company or individual, your stand is your brand and getting clarity on that stand and taking that stand is, uh, I think, one of the most important things that people can do right now. So I appreciate you uh, sharing this with the world. Thank you. All right, Bettys, I hope that you enjoyed this conversation and got a lot of useful gems from it. And of course, if you are still listening to the pod, <laughs> you are one of my special Bettys, one who values completion. And I completely honor and want to throw you some glitter bombs for doing so. And I always try to leave little Easter eggs at the end of the show to see who's listening. So if there is anybody who is still listening to the pod at this point, I would love for you to post on social what you loved about this episode. You can take a screenshot of the pod if you're listening to it on your phone and, you know, maybe one big take takeaway and tag me in it. So uh, on Instagram, I am at 
Dr. Stephanie Estima and would love to know what you took away from this, what was valuable. And uh, I promise I will repost it. So hopefully you get this secret transmission and I will see you next week on the pod. Have a great one. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's geeky magic carpet ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima, and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.